This podcast episode is part of a series brought to you by the UK's Great Britain and Northern Ireland Ready to Trade campaign in partnership with Reuters Plus. To find out more about how the UK's healthcare and innovation systems can address global healthcare challenges, visit great.gov.uk. Hello and welcome to Strengthening Healthcare Systems Post-COVID-19, part of the Ready to Trade podcast series. The pandemic has had a huge impact on health systems across the world, and yet the predominant cause of illness and premature death today are non-communicable diseases, such as cancer, cardiovascular disease, COPD and diabetes. These restrict the ability of countries to deliver universal health care, exacerbated further by COVID-19. Experts warn that without urgent health system strengthening, we will be poorly equipped to handle existing and future crises. To discuss this timely topic, I'm joined by two eminent guests. Richard Stubbs is CEO of the Yorkshire and Humber Academic Health Science Network, and Christopher Exeter is NHS Advisor, Better Health Programme and Health System Strengthening Specialist at the Department for International Trade. Christopher, I wonder if you could kick us off by doing a little bit of de-jargoning for us. What do we mean by health system strengthening? It's quite the mouthful. Why is it so important? Sure. So health system strengthening is a set of interventions. There's actually a definition by the World Health Organization covering areas such as service delivery, healthcare financing, access to health, leadership and governance, amongst other things, and developing a workforce. And it's essentially the levers which enable a country to progress towards universal healthcare. So this is where you have a complete system of healthcare services, a bit like the NHS, that allows access to a wide variety of healthcare services. But crucially, the amount of payment, so what's referred to as out-of-pocket expenses, that the patient or the individual has to pay is very, very low. So if you think about it in our system, the amount we have to pay out-of-pocket to, to access NHS services is quite low because it's a tax-funded system. Other systems will require the patient or the public to pay more out of pocket than others. So so it's the completeness of the system, the integrated nature of the system, and the low level of out-of-pocket expenses. But it is a set of mechanisms which help to complete a whole system health service delivery model. Richard, we have the global pandemic now, of course. Is it fair to say that we've had for a long time a silent pandemic in the form of non-communicable diseases like cancer? I think that's absolutely fair to say. There's been an ongoing challenge to tackle non-communicable diseases in the UK for some time, uh, with a continued upward trend prior to this COVID-19 pandemic. If you take mental ill health, for example, which is a common non-communicable disease, it costs our UK economy in excess of £105 billion a year to treat. We know that at least one in four people um, will experience a mental health problem in any given year, and people with severe mental illness die up to 20 years younger than their peers in the UK. Of course, when it comes to mental health as well as physical health, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact upon mental health and only accelerating and exacerbating the challenges which were apparent before the pandemic. I think it'll be interesting, we've seen over the last 12 months how when the global healthcare and scientific community can come together to tackle such a single crisis such as COVID-19, as we now move hopefully beyond that peak of pandemic, will we shift our attention to starting to tackle some, as you say, that long-standing silent pandemic that has always existed in all our communities around the globe. Christopher, how does that play out in terms of global health systems? How much more vulnerability has been exposed as a result of the pandemic? 
Well, Ella, I mean, COVID-19 has flushed through greater weaknesses within healthcare systems. I mean, as Richard said, I mean, those weaknesses have always existed. I mean, pre-pandemic, there was this fight to uh, achieve universal healthcare against this onslaught of the non-communicable disease pandemic. What we've seen with COVID is that it's exposed that even further. So it's exposed where the weaknesses are, where the fractures or the fissures are. And of course, it's diverted attention. We've seen in many systems how people with non-communicable disease either haven't been detected or not been treated because of the way that services had to be diverted to tackle the pandemic. So it has exposed weaknesses within systems. I'm reminded of a quote about one of the pandemics in, in Africa where somebody said to a health leader here, you know, don't let your system be diverted if you have a pandemic. And I think that's a really important message. You know, we, we've got to make sure that systems are able to treat people with existing diseases, whilst obviously treating people and hopefully preventing people from becoming catastrophically unwell with COVID. And I think we know that there is this coterminosity between people suffering with a non-communicable disease and the likelihood of catching COVID. We've been involved with some work quite recently and, and somebody from South Africa said that, you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, they identified people that were suffering with type 2 diabetes and over the age of 70 because they knew that those people were most at risk. So they put round a package of care to support them. So it has exposed the weaknesses, but it has offered opportunities. And I think the one big opportunity is how we can now progress towards achieving universal health care and strengthening health systems in countries where the systems are working towards the 2030 goal of universal health care. Yeah, that's interesting. The COVID-19 and non-communicable diseases, they're not isolated. They play into each other given the comorbidities. And so you need to look at both in the round. Can I follow up by saying this may have exposed vulnerabilities to people paying attention, but to what extent is the issue up the agenda? Oh, very much so. I mean, I think that certainly countries that are, you know, this has become such a global nightmare for virtually the whole world. I mean, there's been very few countries that have escaped being affected by COVID-19 anyway. And those countries, they have been working hard towards achieving universal health care. This has been something that is very much on their attention. And I think it's not just that link with making people healthy and keeping people well. It's all the other consequences of it. So it is the effect that it's had on economies. It is the effect that it's had on the financial security of individuals. The other thing it has addressed or exposed are those inequalities within society. So what are those underlying social determinants? that are outside of the health service. I mean, people will often think that health services do everything. Health services on the whole are really, really good at treating people. But to, to prevent people from becoming ill in the first place requires a much greater whole of society approach. And also, quite frankly, individuals taking more responsibility for their own health themselves, you know, keeping themselves well, you know, undertaking, you know, appropriate levels of physical fitness if they can, you know, eating in moderation, you know, reduced alcohol consumption. So all those different factors to keep oneself well. Richard, you've put a lot of emphasis around health inequalities in the UK. To what extent is that a driving factor when we're talking about strengthening healthcare systems, would you say? I think it absolutely has to be at the heart of any strategic thinking about strengthening strategic health systems, Ross, because when we think about what our goal is here, our goal is to lift the healthcare outputs for countries as a whole at population level. And you can't really do true population health without understanding sometimes the perverse or reverse impacts on 
health that can be created if you don't understand the health inequality challenge that's at the heart of some of this. I think in the UK, you know, we, we've started to look very much at segmenting our communities, segmenting our populations and our citizens to understand or to ensure that we don't exacerbate and I suppose, you know, with, with, in a perverse way, create further inequalities through the deployment of innovation. What that means, I mean, how do you avoid that? You have to be able to co-create. You have to be able to understand the needs of citizens and understand the needs, the cultural needs of different communities. You have to have, I think, diversity at the heart of how you both create and deploy innovation to ensure that ultimately you are putting things into systems that are designed to reach those communities who need them most. Without that, you do run the risk of just creating a greater polarisation between uh, the haves and the have-nots. Christopher, I wonder if you can try and make this a bit more concrete for us and explain how health system strengthening works in practice to improve the healthcare outcomes that Richard's talking about. So it can happen in a number of different ways. It's a very broad compass. Take one example, one area which is an absolute central building block of a universal healthcare system is primary healthcare. The UK, through the NHS, has a really strong primary healthcare system. It's been one of the, the sort of foundation blocks since the foundation of the NHS. And actually, arguably, the sort of the, the, the welfare system pre the NHS was very much focused on primary care in the UK. And what that enables is sort of a one access point for the patient. So we often get called, in fact, you know, one of the areas where we get most requests for support from, but certainly one of the top three, is around primary health care. You know, sharing the UK experience, because that experience of having that single point of contact into the system, for us, the general practitioner, the navigator, also acts as a gatekeeper. So you, you cannot sort of self-refer yourself into other parts of the system, where in other countries one can, which provides, you know, unequal access to care, or it can be very costly. But it also allows us to manage that process. It's going back to Richard's point about segmenting populations. You know, the information that we, we collect through the medical records is a unique data set that enables us to target and focus attention on particular areas of need, whether they be geographic or whether they are needs-based or whether they're disease-based. And so that as a complete set. And then the other parts of the primary care system, so nursing, the links with social care and public health, and all the other providers of, of primary care services, such as the pharmacies, are all there as a sort of a, a building block for access and to provide early stage services. But it is that central figure of the general practitioner within our system, which is really sort of the, the, the keystone of the NHS. And that sort of model of primary care is very important to us as the NHS, but also more widely is one of those areas where countries really need support if they're really going to get and open up access to, to health services to their population. Richard, in what ways would you say the UK's National Health Service, the NHS, advances healthcare outcomes? I think the UK has taken huge steps, uh, particularly recently, in terms of our ability to transform and rethink the way that we deliver healthcare services and to have a very outcomes-based approach to our work. What that's meant, I think, has been a lot more integration of service, looking at the whole patient journey from a good birth to a good death and everything in between and starting I think to radically rethink the platforms that are needed to be able to deliver healthcare to patients. I think the NHS obviously is a model that was created in 1948. Interestingly over the last 12 months, certainly in my 
20 years of working in, in the national healthcare system, I've seen an acceleration of the transformation of the way that they deliver care that's been unprecedented in my lifetime working in the NHS. And I think those lessons that we've learned, how we've been able to absolutely rapidly and radically alter the way that we need to deliver care because of the conditions that the pandemic required, has enabled us, I think, to have a cultural shift in how we see technology and how we understand that actually innovation isn't just an add-on to the delivery of care, but in many ways, it can start to be one of the key mobilizing ways in which care can be provided. We've seen that very much in the delivery of remote consultations, removing the need for face-to-face -face activity. That's not to say that that's ever gonna be appropriate for everybody, but I think we've started to have a more sophisticated lens in understanding how you can efficiently use technology so that the right kind of care can be provided for the right patient in a setting that suits them. As we are hearing in this podcast, brought to you by the UK's Great Britain and Northern Ireland Ready to Trade campaign, in partnership with Reuters Plus, there is a wealth of UK healthcare innovation and knowledge that can help address global needs. To find out more, visit great.gov.uk. Richard, you were telling us about how technology can improve people's physical and mental health. I was wondering if you could give us a few concrete examples of the most exciting developments in the UK that you're seeing at the moment. Absolutely. I think it's, and it's always hard, actually. I mean, there is so much talent, I think, amongst our innovation communities within the UK. It's always hard to pick out just a few examples. But certainly one of my favourites that does excite me a lot is a company we've been working with at the Academic Health Science Network for a number of years now. They're called Healthy IO, originally an Israeli company, but now very much embedded within the UK. They have really looked at the use of citizens' smartphones and started to reinvent how the smartphone can be used as a digital diagnostic device. And so, for example, when it comes to helping people with diabetes to remotely monitor their kidney health, they have a fantastic ability to use individual smartphones coupled with a fantastic patient-friendly app, which allows people to have this diagnostic ability. Of course, as we know, when it comes to non-communicable diseases, often with those chronic comorbidities, these patients are often in and out of healthcare facilities for simple diagnostic tests. When you can unshackle them in the way that HealthIO does from the need to travel in and out of hospital, all of a sudden you're absolutely transforming people's lives. And when I'm talking about people, I'm talking about people from 18 to 80 and actually beyond. So the other great thing about this technology, which really excites me is that actually it's proven and evaluated to be better at compliance than our traditional healthcare models. So in terms of people being able to monitor their kidney health, normally we fail to engage up to 60% of at-risk people. Within this technology, because of the way it empowers patients, it gives them control of the way they manage, manage their disease, we're now seeing compliance rates, uh, which are several times higher in terms of the percentage of compliance across the board. So Healthy.io, I think, is, is one to watch, and you know we're, we're massive fans of that. I'd also mention a company called Brain in Hands. They're another app-based company. They actually support people with neurodiversity to aid and manage their anxiety. And in a similar way, it's about deassociating the needs or the requirements for patients to travel on a very frequent basis into healthcare settings, giving them control of their own health, allowing them to monitor their own health. And in terms of Brain at Hand, it allows people to communicate with a professional using a simple traffic light system. 
we're seeing it making an absolute difference to people's lives. And I think both those two technologies, and I could talk about thousands and thousands of examples that are similar, show not only the ability to radically trust patients more and give them the, the ability to control their own health, but also the savings that you would imagine that we're seeing in terms of the fact that we're able to then de-invest in the need to have expensive acute services. Freeing up clinicians to be where they most need to be is also quite a staggering part of, of both those case studies. And I think often when you're on the citizen side, you think about your health in relation to your relationship with the bricks and mortar institutions, such as your hospitals and your primary care general physicians, rather than thinking about health as not just the individual's responsibility, but also the wider system in which you live. You know, health is about your education, it's about your housing, it's about your jobs, it's about your access to transport, it's about your relationships in your communities, as well as your individual responsibility. Across the globe, we are seeing the costs of healthcare rise. It's an unsustainable position. The only way we'll continue to have the kind of outcomes that we have for our patients and hopefully to improve those further still is to start to think more about health than healthcare. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is to empower our citizens and our patients to use innovation and technology to both better monitor their own health, but also being empowered to know what to do to manage healthcare conditions if they start to deteriorate. I think if we rely on that old-fashioned way of you get sick and then you get treated, healthcare across the globe will soon become unaffordable. Christopher, thinking internationally, to what degree can the UK play an important role given our leading healthcare sector and helping other countries? You know, there are huge numbers of opportunities and we've seen this through COVID, through either the sequencing, through the development of vaccines, through the work on understanding you know, why, what are the underlying causes of the disease. You know, that, that sort of research and development collaborations are very important. And, you know, UK um, institutions want to work very closely with international partners on this. But I think there are other areas as well. I mean, one of those we, we, we look at very closely is, is something called frugal innovation or reverse translation. So by, you know, working in partnership with countries, are there things that we can learn from from what they're doing that we can introduce into the NHS? So we're, we're improving the NHS at the same time because no healthcare system could be fixed or, or, or stay stationary. And they always have to evolve. Um, systems, you know, our system has had to move from from being, you know, treating just as an episodic service, i.e. you go in, you know, you have an infection, you're given a prescription and off you go, to the sort of the long-term care that's required through people that are, you know, suffering with cancer or heart disease. So systems always have to evolve. And I think those lessons that we've learned over the sort of the 70 plus years of the NHS can apply to our international partners. And I use that word partnership because I think it, it is very much that, you know, it's how we learn from each other, how we work with each other, and also how we, we you know, we understand, you know, the, the importance and impact of innovation. And that is the sort of the tech, but it's also other areas such as, you know, the work that's going on around creating carbon neutral healthcare systems, the work around um, genomics, for example, which is hugely exciting. And, and the impact it will have on the, on the health of populations across the world will be phenomenal in the years and decades to come. So I think it's all about partnership and, and we look at it in a number of different ways, you know, but it is a very collaborative, a very collaborative approach. I'd like you to both think about some concluding thoughts. But before I do, let me ask Richard, if you could wave your magic wand, what is it that you'd like to leap to the top of the agenda in order to really improve 
healthcare outcomes in the UK and perhaps abroad too? Oh, goodness me, that's an interesting challenge, isn't it? I think if we're really, truly serious about improving healthcare outcomes, then I think it's about recognising that the responsibility for that lies on a number of people and a number of organisations that's much wider than our traditional thinking around healthcare and the provision of healthcare delivery and, and services. So I think we do place too much emphasis on our national health service to be responsible for the nation's health. We need to think about health in all policies. And I think in the UK, we are starting to think about that quite radically. You know, the role of education, the role of employers and the employment sector, the role of transport and town planners around their work in relation to how it's going to positively impact on the health of their local communities. But also, I think we need to have a a new contract with ourselves as citizens and starting to understand the personal responsibility where possible. Because again, we talked about health inequalities and it's not always possible for every person in society to take that kind of responsibility for their own health. But where possible, I think we need to look at ourselves and think about our own personal responsibility to be as healthy for as long as possible. Christopher, how can countries emerge with more resilient healthcare systems in the future, would you say? Well, it's twofold. I think, number one, it is about international collaboration. I mean, no healthcare systems are stationary. They're not fixed. They have to evolve. And I think part of that evolution is how we work together collaboratively. You know, we know that the underlying causes of most diseases are the same wherever you are. You know, the underlying causes of type 2 diabetes are the same in the UK as they are in France, as they are in Thailand, as they are in Indonesia. They are all the same. And I think that sort of sharing and that collaboration is going to become absolutely critical. And I would hope that given what we have seen throughout this last year with COVID, we would hopefully emerge as a a world, maybe slightly idealistically, but in a better place to be able to work collaboratively in these ways. So it's much more sharing of understanding. Because one thing we do know coming out of this is that economically the world is going to be far far more stretched. We are going to see financial hardship on, on many countries and with many individuals. So that need to share and collaborate is going to become all the more, more essential. What we also know is that there will be future pandemics. You know, you referenced actually non-communicable diseases being a, a, a pandemic in their own right, and they are absolutely. And, and this was possibly the first time, you know, certainly in the, in, the, in the history of the world, in the near history of the world, where we've been fighting two pandemics, the pandemic of non-communicable disease and a major global pandemic of coronavirus. So it's ensuring that we've got established, you know, we're establishing effective systems, strong data surveillance, strong collaboration and making sure that the basic foundations of a good, strong healthcare system are built in our countries as quickly as possible. And those that are progressing towards the UN's 2030 goal of universal healthcare are enabled to achieve that target. Richard, let me give you a closing word on this. You live and breathe innovation in this context and the world's been through a difficult period, as Chris has just alluded to. To what degree should we all be optimistic about the future of healthcare? I would like to say that we should have a high degree of optimism. It's difficult, isn't it, when you're in the teeth of of a pandemic to see the bright side. But I think as we start, I think, to see some of the green shoots of our own recovery and the global recovery as well, we can start to look at the beneficial changes that have happened over the last 12 months. I think for me, I would point to two things which give me a high degree of optimism. The first is that it has possibly re-cemented our own understanding and relationship and the fragility of our health. 
and I mean that you know health rather than healthcare. So on a citizen level, on a communities level, on a countrywide level, I do think we will start to have a societal conversation about the importance of good health, maintaining good physical and mental health. And if you like, ensuring that we have the kind of resilience that's been shown to be required to cope with things like pandemics. And as Christopher said, you know, the future pandemics to come. So that's one thing. The second thing for me has been the obvious partnership and joint working that we've seen between countries. Health and good health should be accessible to every citizen on the planet. I think it is a shared endeavour. And I would like to say that culturally, I want to think that we will retain the kind of togetherness that we've shown by and large, I think, in terms of tackling this issue as a global society. And some of the barriers that have been inevitably broken down to enable that to happen, I would like to think won't be rebuilt in 2021. Thanks to expert insights from Richard Stubbs, CEO of the Yorkshire and Humber Academic Health Science Network, and Christopher Exeter, NHS advisor for the Better Health Programme of the Department for International Trade. To hear more about the spirit of innovation in Great Britain and Northern Ireland, you can tune into our previous podcast on the UK's e-commerce boom, where we discuss exciting opportunities for global entrepreneurs and investors. This Ready to Trade podcast is brought to you by the UK's Great Britain and Northern Ireland Ready to Trade campaign in partnership with Reuters Plus. To learn more about the potential of the UK's leading healthcare sector to meet global healthcare needs, visit great.gov.uk.